0: This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference when all has been heard in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.
1: All right. We were about to pray. Let's do that. Father... We started by asking for a double portion of your blessing. We started, Lord, by turning to you as our God, as our Father, as our beloved, as the one who not only created us, but redeemed us and then chose us to be in partnership with you. So, Lord, we come with great humility, asking again, that you would continue to do for us that which you have planned for us, that you would continue to gift us. Every good and perfect gift comes from you, and we are here in need of your gift. So we come open hands, open heart, open minds. Please, Lord, do for us that which you know we can't do for ourselves. And Lord, I stand before you with all that I have, of worth and of trash, asking that you would clean out, that you would purge, that you would empty, so that then you can fill and pour through me to your daughters. And Lord, we promise that when we have received what you are going to give us, we'll give you all the honor and all the glory. Amen. This morning, for those of you who were here, We talked about a couple of things, and actually, you know what, teachers do this all the time. So this is the pop quiz. What did we talk about this morning? Identity. Identity. Somebody tell me something we said this morning or learned about identity. Again, not a rhetorical question. We are created in God's image. Created female in the image of God. And we spent some time this morning talking about what it means to be created in God's image, what it means to be redeemed by him, but also what it means to be called by name. We spent a little bit of time in Isaiah 43 this morning, looking at how God tells us how precious and valuable and honored we are. And then in our second session, we talked about beauty. We talked about the beautiful woman. We talked a lot about what that means to be beautiful from the inside out, to be beautiful in terms of the character, the image of God that he is developing in us, what beauty means from that perspective, and how that then influences how we see ourselves, how we see our bodies, and how we clothe those bodies that God has gifted us with. And so I promised you this morning that we would continue the conversation and that we would continue it around the issues of purity. Remember that we started several of our discussions this morning in Titus 2? And if you'll go with me back to Titus 2, we'll look at what Titus 2 is saying to women, and um, we'll build from there into that idea that we want to discuss. Let's go to Titus 2, verse 3. Because we started with the beautiful older woman who were training and developing and nurturing and mentoring, beautiful younger women. And those of you who are sitting out there and saying, you know, I'm not an old woman, so I don't have to mentor and nurture and train. Can I say not? If there is anybody younger than you in your sphere of influence that makes you an older woman. If there's anybody who is around you who might look at you, you're an older woman. And all of these things apply. Now, there will be a point where you get to the point where you're gray-haired and you look around and a lot of people are younger than you. But for all of us, there's someone who's coming behind us who needs from us our nurture, our mentoring, our example, and our teaching. It says, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way. Teach them to be in behavior as becometh holiness, if I'm reading from the King James. Not false accusers, not given to wine, and we talked about some of that as not given not only to wine, but to addictions in general. Teachers of good things, so that they may teach the young woman to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. And if you look at many um, versions of verse 5, it says to be self-controlled and pure. And this morning, we talked about self-control and the importance of self-control for beautiful women. And this afternoon, I'd like to talk a little and look at the word of God a little on the subject of purity. Godly women, the Bible says, beautiful women, are beautiful partially because they are pure. And if there was ever a time in earth's history when thinking about purity was important, it is probably now. We have probably never lived in an age when there were so many opportunities to be impure when there were so many, not only opportunities, but advertisements and encouragements to impurity. Think about any typical day that you have. Think about social media. Think about, perhaps, television. Think about going into a bookstore. Think about just talking to people. People that you know at work. People that you know at school. And we understand that this is a context in which impurity is now the norm. Does that make sense? They're all around us, surrounding us. And so here's this interesting question. The Bible calls us to be in the world and not of it. How do we do that and what does that mean? And I'm going to look very specifically in the time we have together about at some of the specific things that I think we may be struggling with or people around us are struggling with and that it's useful to speak to during that period of time. Um, But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about purity itself. Turn with me to Proverbs 16, verse 2. And we'll probably do a lot of running up and down in the Bible this afternoon as we look at various things. And I love that when I come to GYC and I say that, People whip out their phones, people whip out their paper Bibles, and um, we're all in this together. My students have come to the conclusion that we better have a Bible on our phone because Dr. Watts is going to say in the middle of class, now let's look this up. It's like, oh yeah, my Bible. All right, Proverbs 16, verse 2, where it says, all the ways of a man are clean or pure in his own eyes. But the Lord weigheth the spirits. Because one of the things that the Bible says is let's not make the assumption that we automatically will look at something and know this is not pure. This is not clean. Why can we not make the assumption that that's automatically going to happen? Don't you know what's impure? Isn't it kind of obvious to you? Yes, no. It's obvious. Whenever you see something impure, you know it. How would you know it? What would make it obvious? I'm going to take us back to this morning. Remember, we talked about the Word of God, the Bible as mirror and standard. I'm going to argue that the only way that we would know is if we are indeed grounded and based in the word. There's nothing about us that naturally says, you know what, I got it. Let me give you an example. Have you ever been exposed to something that in the beginning you thought was terrible and horrific and really, really bad, and then over time... It seemed less and less and less so. You got so used to hearing it or seeing it that you almost didn't notice anymore that it was there. And so our assumptions that we automatically know what is pure and impure may not always be true. That possibility of sliding into something that we didn't quite catch. And one of the things that I'm going to suggest as we talk today is that there are some things that over time have also slid slowly and gently from where they were into a new place. And that it's easy sometimes to miss that new place. And so look what the psalmist says in Psalms 26, verse 2. And then we'll look at Psalm 139 as well. But in Psalms 36, verse 2, the psalmist talks to that point. He addresses that issue for himself as he looks at. And I think I might have someone else read that for us. Let's get you involved in some other ways. Psalm 36 and verse 2. Okay, and you know what? I just made a mistake. Let's go to Psalm 26, verse 2. So I'm like, okay. She's reading very well, but um, <laughs> let's go to Psalm 26, verse 2. Test me. Examine me, O Lord. Try me. Examine my heart. Examine my mind. And he goes on in verse 6 to say, for your love is ever before me. And one of the things that we're going to do in this session today is raise some things, look at some issues that might need to be part of our examination, that might need to be part of looking at our minds. And let's go to one more text here. Psalm 139, 23 to 24. Psalm 139, 23 to 24. This is David's prayer, and let me recommend that it be our prayer as we address this issue, as we look at these kinds of things, because David understands that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. We are not naturally inclined toward God, not naturally inclined to the things of God, And so David says, search me, O God, in the King James. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. When you read, or you heard, that we were going to talk about purity, what did you think we were going to talk about? Sexual purity. purity. You thought, oh, she's going to talk about sex. It's just talk about, you know, people having sex who are not married to each other and people having sex with people who are not their partners. And so, you know, that's good because we can come and sit and be very comfortable that we are probably not doing that. And so this will be a good session. We'll feel good. Go home. You know, because we're not doing that. All right? And one of the things when I thought about this session I'll be honest, and I originally thought about, yeah, we should talk about premarital sex, and we might for a minute or two. Um, We should talk about, and then I came across something in James. And I was reading it, I looked it up, and then I started looking up more things, and it took me in a direction that I hadn't thought about at that moment, okay? So if we go to James 1, And let's look at verses 14 and 15. And it says every man, but in this case, I really believe this is every man in the generic, so it applies to every woman as well. And in James 1, verse 14 and 15, it says, Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So basically, James says, you know what? What really happens to us is we're pulled by our own lust. And I'm writing in my journal and I think, okay, I'm okay. I think I'm okay. You know, I don't think I'm filled with lust and pulled by my own lust, so I'm okay. And then I start looking terms up. And my original assumption that when we're talking about lust, we're necessarily talking about sexual desire. Is not necessarily so. When James talks about lust, the definition that we worked with was uncontrolled craving. And so James says, every man is tempted, or every woman is tempted, when he, is, he or she is drawn away By their uncontrolled desires. By those things that they crave. And suddenly, it shifts a little bit. What are the things that you crave? What are the things, to use this definition, that you lust for? And it just widened the field, did it not? Way beyond that initial narrow definition. And I'm going to, the word says that those desires, those lusts pull us into a place where then we're led into sin. And the text goes on to say, and that sin results in death. A strong reason then to be interested in, concerned about those things that we crave, those things that we lust. We're going to make a connection between that discussion this morning about identity and the cravings that we have. As women, as Christians, and in many, many cases, those cravings that we have that lead us to strange places. I identified a number of things that currently I think, are invitations to lust for many women. And some of these come out of the literature. Some of these come out of some of the statistics that are coming out right now. If you think in terms of lust, you think in terms of uncontrolled cravings, sexual or otherwise, what would you say are some of the temptations that women are facing now? There aren't any. We're all safe and we can go home now. <laughs> or you live somewhere very different from where I live. Because I work on a college campus and my experience is that. There's some things out there. Alcohol. Pardon me? Internet porn. Relationship addiction. Pardon me? Fashion. Fashion. Okay? And a lusting for certain kinds of look and a craving for that will do all kinds of things to look a certain way. Okay? Some of the addiction that people have to cosmetic surgery. It's an uncontrolled craving to the point where people destroy their bodies in order to look a certain way. What else? Food. Okay. Some of us struggle. Some of us struggle, and God, praise God, gives the victory fantasy I thought I saw another hand okay. success a lust a craving for success i'd like to take a look at just a few of those on the list of the ones that you have mentioned and that i think are critical one Let's talk about women and vicarious romance woman and vicarious romance. One of the things that they've discovered, and it showed up in a variety of studies, is that women can become addicted to romance novels. They can also become addicted to television shows built around romance. Now, can you really get addicted to reading a book? Why? How? The idea of it? I don't know the idea like conveyed. The idea conveyed by the book? Okay. There's such a difference between like a storybook and shallow reading versus like a new reading of the Bible. And you can get addicted to the storylines of a story. So where you enjoy the
0: shallowness
1: of reading, but you don't enjoy the study. Okay. So you can get addicted to simply the process of, I don't really have to work my brain too hard to watch this show. You know about that? Sit in front of the television and it just kind of goes through your head and goes through your head. By the way, it is going through your head. Okay? While it feels like it's just... It is going through your head. Making sense? We're going to come back to that and that idea of let this mind be in me, which is in Christ Jesus. All right? Let's talk about romance novels for a minute, though. You can physically become addicted to romance novels. There is a hormone that they call the snuggle hormone. Anybody know what it is? Oxytocin. And one of the things about oxytocin is, oxytocin gives you that feeling, literally, of closeness and cuddle and warmth and so forth and so on. And oxytocin is actually, that's that um, substance that allows women to feel close when you're breastfeeding. That creates that sense of nurture. Okay? It's also, interestingly, um, a substance that has to be raised in a female for her to feel ready to have sexual relationships with someone. And the interesting thing is they say in women it rises before and in men it rises after. Okay. But It's that feeling we get of warmth and connection, so forth. There are some fascinating studies that suggest that reading romance novels raises the level in your body. And so what you become addicted to is not just the story, not just the ease of reading, but also the feeling of being nurtured and somehow connected. There's some. one of the things that I was looking at as I was reading this is what romance writers were saying. And you know, just as everything else in the world, they do studies so that they can sell. And they have figured out what are the plots, what are the stories, what is it that works for women? and one of the things that happens with us is we buy into fantasy well so we read the book and we can see everything if you've ever read a romance novel it has everything described in detail what she wore what he wore what color her hair was and his and what he did <laughs> Because that creates for you that clear image in your mind. And if you don't think that works, ask someone who reads romance novels to tell you the story. And they can tell you the story in incredible detail. And I'm thinking, did you watch it on television? I mean, and then he wore, and then he did this, and then he put his hand here. I mean, it's intentional. It's intentional. It's not by accident and it does exactly what it is expected to do. So we're addicted partially to the feeling, but we're also addicted to the idea. To that fantasy. Because you know something? In the stories, somehow these guys end up all right. They end up being the kind of guy that we all think eventually we're going to get together with. right? And then some of the last ones, I think there's some really strange variations on that. But the fantasy allows us to live out in imagination what many of us would never live out in reality. Can I say that again? Those of us who may pride ourselves on our purity, and with some right, need to be very careful of vicarious experience. The kind of experience that I won't allow myself to go through physically, but I will allow myself to go through in reading, in watching, in listening. How many of you are intrigued by going to someone's house and standing in their bedroom and watching them in their personal encounters? I'm glad to see no one raise their hand. How many of us have spent significant amounts of time over the years in somebody's bedroom on screen, watching them do something that we would not stand in a bedroom and watch someone do? Are you with me? So one of the challenges is the stuff that we're reading. And now, romance novels have added not just the element of pornography, because they have become much more pornographic than they used to be. But many of them have added elements of vampires, elements of werewolves, and all kinds of other things. I spend a decent amount of time in bookstores And one of the things that I'm able to do in a bookstore is walk through and pull things off the shelf and look to see what they know me by name. Um, And the shift over time in what is included in books and in movies that we would never have imagined in books and movies five years ago that now are the norm. And so, remember we talked earlier about that change, that subtle change? Well, one way that subtle change happens is the things that we were doing become worse, but we don't notice because we're addicted to doing it. Think about television. If you watch television, how have shows changed over the last five years? Now I can watch commercials with same-sex couples. In the commercial, five, ten years ago, unimaginable, now normative. One of the things about guarding the avenues of our mind, what we watch, what we read, is the fact that we become so used to it that it becomes normative. It becomes okay. It becomes the way it is, and we become used to it. So one of the issues, I think, definitely, is what we read and what we watch. But some of us seem not to need to read or watch it. We can create fantasy all by ourselves. I guess it at home for some of us. And we have imaginations that are such that we can create that story, play that story in our heads, and experience that story by ourselves. Is that a good thing? That we have imagination, that we can create in our minds, that we can build story? Is it a good thing? It can be a wonderful thing. It just depends what it is that we're creating in our minds. It is a gift to be able to imagine. God uses imagination. So that when you read the Bible and the Bible talks about God relating to us, when you read the Bible and the Bible gives us a story, you can tell it, you can understand it, you can see it. It's a great thing. But there are some fantasies that cost us that cost us in tremendous ways. Because the brain is built for repetition. You know that. And you know that when you repeat something, it actually physically changes your brain. The beauty of the brain is plasticity, that you can change it, that it cuts grooves the more that you do something. So what do you think happens the more that you imagine? Your brain treats it as experience. Any athletes in the room? Okay. One of the things that happens a lot in athletics right now is that we teach people to visualize themselves doing the sport. So you know you see these guys with the basketball, and there's no basketball? Okay. But they're building that memory, that habit. And so when they actually do have a basketball, they can work with it. The same thing works with what we read, what we watch, and what we imagine. Every single time, it cuts pathways in the brain. And those pathways become deeper and deeper and deeper. Let me suggest three major problems with the fantasy romance novels, the soap operas, whatever that whole list of what I call vicarious romance. One, it takes time, people. How long does it take to read a romance novel? Depends on how fast you read, right? But I'm suspecting that for most of us, it's more than an hour, more than two hours. Okay. It takes time. And that's time that for most of us, we're not spending with people, We're not spending with God, and we're not using to build. The Bible talks about ordering our steps. The Bible talks about teach us to number our days, to mark our time. Time is an issue. Isolation is a second one, Okay, especially if you're a Christian you're probably not reading your romance novel in front of all your friends, okay? You know, over in the corner, under the blankets with the flashlight. So it moves us away from other people. It moves us away from people who nurture and build. Be careful of anything that you have to hide. Anything that you have to hide. No matter how innocent it seems, if I have to hide it, I need to be asking God about it. Right? And if I've got to take this book and slip it in my bag, and under, when, when I see you, I'm on the train and I've got to put the magazine around it. By the way, be careful about the magazines. Some of them feed fantasy. Okay? Do you really want to look like that? Okay. Um, And yes, if you want to look like that, let's talk about that. But so, we talk about time. We talk about isolation from other people. Talk about changes in the brain. One of the other things that vicarious romance does is change our expectations. What kind of man do you want? And that one was, I guess, rhetorical. When you think about the kind of man that you want, what determines that? How did you set that standard? If you've read enough romance novels, watched enough romantic movies, you probably have a relatively skewed idea of what that man looks like. And guess what? Those men were created to have a specific impact and you're not likely to find them in the real world. They have interesting problems that get solved easily. So You're not likely to find them in the real world. And I had someone say to me the other day, but I don't understand. None of the men that I meet are like the man I read about. I wonder why. Because they don't have all kinds of editors sitting in a back room deciding what this guy should look like, how he should act, so forth and so on. You're in the real world with real people. So one of the things it does is change our expectations. There's a lot of, um, well, there's a decent amount of literature that talks about how women who are heavy romance readers who watch a lot of soap operas and so forth and so on tend to be unhappy. They're unhappy with themselves, because they're not like the fantasy world, and they're unhappy with the men, the husbands, the boyfriends, because they don't fit, they don't do those things. You know, in a romance novel, it's free to buy all kinds of expensive gifts for you. In the real world, you have to work and get the money and bring it home, and he has to think about it. Are we making some sense here? Okay. So I would encourage you to be very, very careful about romanticism, in that sense, about that imagined view of what you want and what you need. And the last challenge that I have for you is that that kind of vicarious experience is grooming. Do you know what I mean when I say grooming? One of the things that happens, for example, if um, somebody is interested in, let's say they're working with homeless kids and they would like that homeless kid to be in the sex trade, is you start to groom them. You do little things and little things that bring them closer and closer to where you want them to be. And eventually, that person initially slides into it and then later they find out where they are. And often it's too hard to get out. This kind of reading grooms people. What happens when you get used to reading a book and getting that feeling of nurture and snuggle and so forth? And what happens when the book is no longer enough for that feeling? Then what? We have moved ourselves to a place where it is easier for us to fall into the sins that we pride ourselves on not being involved in. Does that make sense? Do you see it? And so the idea is, when I see this over here that looks so innocent, so non-invasive, I remind myself that James 1 says what about lust? James 1? We started there? What did the text say? We're tempted by our lust, and that lust pulls us to sin, and then sin leads to death. What happens if you're already addicted and if those paths are already cut into your brain? I'm going to suggest that there's hope for us. There's hope for us. But let me turn you for a minute to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Because some of us are not involved. Some of us are lightly involved. And for those of us who are not yet caught up in those kinds of things, I would go with 1 Corinthians 6 verse 10 because it basically says flee from sexual immorality. Not walk, not sidle sideways, not check as you go, not stand in that section of the bookstore or the video store or the channels. The Bible says... Flee. Flee as in run. Because the things that we crave that are uncontrolled pull us toward death. And so for those of you for whom these are not issues, I would say when you see it, run. When you get close to it, run. When you get tempted by it, run. If somebody else gives it to you, run. If you got to leave it at home and run and leave it, it. you know, a better way would just throw it in garbage and move on. Okay, But women particularly seem to be um, sensitive to this particular thing. Let me read you a couple of quotes from Mrs. White. Even fiction, which contains no suggestion of impurity and which may be intended to teach excellent principles, is harmful. It encourages the habit of hasty and superficial reading, merely for the story. Thus it destroys the power of connected and vigorous thought. It unfits the soul to contemplate issues of Christ. This is Councils to Parent, Teachers, and Students. And by the way, we will post to the app some of this information for you. Um, So let me talk about Christian fiction and Christian romances. Because people tell me they're all cleaned up. They don't have any sex in them. There's still stories that are unrealistic, that are based on fantasy, and that were created to sell. And that shift over time as the market changes. So as the other ones get worse, these can progress a little. Because they look so much better in comparison to the other. So those of us who have been sold that particular bill of goods, but it's a Christian romance. But it's got holy characters in it. But the people are Amish. And also not real. Okay. Let me mention something else while we're here. Used to be, we talked about pornography as a male problem. It used to be, when we talked about addiction to pornography, we mostly and only talked about men. Well, women, we have come of age because this is no longer a male problem. I ran across an article where it said that um, if you It was written for psychologists and it said, if the woman that you're dealing with has certain sexual issues that you're addressing, you could prescribe 50 Shades of Grey. And I looked, (laughs) and I looked, and I looked again. Because pornography for females has come of age. It's out there, it's accepted, and we also have a problem in here. Let's not get all of, you know, you know we, 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 don't, we, we don't have those kind of problems. If it's out there, it's in here. Okay. Again, we're talking about fleeing, right? The Bible talks to us about what happens in the mind. It says that adultery, fornication, is not only what you do with your body, It's also what happens in your mind. And some of us have minds that are in a very different place from our bodies. I'm not going to do a whole lot. I'm not going to say a whole lot about that other than to say, one, it is very easy to find and fall into. If we are not grounded into the, in the Word, we fall into things. I didn't mean to; it was accidental. I didn't mean for that to happen to me. Okay, let me talk about some physical things while we're here. I didn't mean to; it just happened. It was accidental. How do we accidentally end up in bed with someone? I do believe that we often don't mean to, but, folk, it's not accidental. It's not accidental. And it is also not inevitable. Think about the places you go, the people you go with, the circumstances under which you find yourself. I had a student one day who came to my office and said, Dr. Watson, you know, this happened, and I'm so, you know, and, and we prayed together and we kind of cried together and so forth and so on. A couple weeks later, the student's back in my office. You know, Dr. Watson, um, you know what? And so I have to start asking some questions. Were you in the same place you were last time or a similar place? Yeah. Were you doing the same things you were doing last time or similar things? Yeah. Why did you think... There would be a different outcome. If you build a hedge that's far enough from the center, we're more protected. You have to be intentional for something to not happen, quote unquote, accidentally. Are we intentional about the protection and the use of the bodies that God has gifted us with? Bible says, you are not your own. So since it doesn't belong to me, I might have to be very careful about how I share it and where I share it and be intentional about who I share it with. And let's talk a little bit about the soft stuff. Well, no, I, I, we don't sleep together. Um, yeah, we do some touching. Um, you know, not, not, not. Okay, when you start to have to explain to me the not, not, I'm already, where are we? I'm talking about these kinds of things with us. Because so often, we are the ones who, by that strict textbook definition, can talk about purity. But by that definition of lust and uncontrolled craving and what happens in our mind that the scripture talks about, we may not be there. And the Bible is very clear that the women of God are pure. They're clean. I'll tell you a story I read recently that kind of grossed me out, but it also was extremely powerful for me. A young man was talking about, I only want to do a little bit of this to his mother. And so his mother made some brownies. And in the brownies, she put some of the scoop that she'd scooped up behind the dog. And so, as he got ready to eat the brownies, she said, Oh, by the way, there's a little bit of Freddy's leaving in the brownies. And we we'll put it down. And she said, But it's only a little bit. It's not much. That was powerful for me. A little bit of sin is sin, a touch of sin. And a whole lot of good stuff is still sin. So as you think about, as you work with, as you develop, as you allow God to develop in you purity, understand that a little bit too much. Little bit too much. Okay? You can't say it's clean if it's spotted. But let's talk about then solutions. How do you work with that? Suppose I already am quote unquote spotted. Does that make me used goods? Does that make me somehow? Suppose I'm struggling with an addiction. What does God say? Is there any good news for me? what would that good news be? Someone give me some good news. If I'm struggling with addiction, someone give me some good news. He forgives our sins. He heals our diseases. What else? He's able to keep us from falling in Jude. And he came to set the captives free. Whatever the lust is, that craving that we hold on to, he came to set the captives free. People are addicted to whatever that might be, usually because of something that we think we don't have and need more of. Maybe it's escapism. I read romance novels so I don't have to think about my real life and the fact that I don't have a man and I want to have a man. Okay. So I read romance novels. It's escapism. For some of us, it's excitement. It gives us a sense of excitement and participation and so forth and so on. For some of us, it gives us a sense of belonging. There are reasons for addictions. And in that sense, addictions become idols. Why? In what way is an addiction an idol? because we're putting it in God's place. We're suggesting that it can do for us something that we're not allowing God to do. And so part of dealing with addiction is understanding that every good and every perfect gift comes from God. And so whatever it is that I need, he has a way to address. If I'm lonely, he has a way to address it. If my self-worth and my sense of self is awful, he has a way to address it. Whatever it is, he is willing and able to address it. Turn with me. Um, well, let's go back to James for a minute. James one sixteen and 17. So that you can read for yourself. So James, after he talks about every person is tempted, drawn away by their own lust and enticed, then when lust has conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And then he says, don't be deceived. And he he always refers to his beloved brethren. Do not be deceived, do not err. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. It is not by accident that that text follows the other texts. Because what James is saying, whatever you crave, God can fill the craving. If what you crave is not something you ought to have, that's fine. He can change it and give you what it is that you really need. Then turn with me to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 16... go to Ezekiel, Ezekiel 16, and we're going to look at verses 4 to 9, and then we're going to look at something a little further in the chapter. Okay. And someone read that for us. We're going to look at Ezekiel 16. Anyone have it? No? 16, 4 to 9? Okay, if you would please. And for Yes. And
0: for water I any compassion Thou was cast out in the open field to the longing of thy person in the day that thou wast born. And when I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thy own blood, I said unto thee, When thou wast in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, When thou wast in thy blood, live. I have caused thee to multiply the blood of the field, and thou hast increased in waxing great. And thou art come to excellent organs. Thy breasts are fashioned, thy, and thy hair is broke, whereas thou wast naked and bare. Now, when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time is at the time of love. I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee and entered into a covenant, saith the Lord God, and thou became his mother.
1: Okay. This is one of those images in the Bible that I absolutely love. God says, you know, you're like a little baby, and you were there, and you were covered in blood, and you were not loved, and you were not appreciated, and I came and I got you, and I washed you. And I saw you kicking about in your blood, and I said, Live. And I made you grow, and I took care of you, and you flourished, and you grew, and when you got older, I also loved you, and I made a covenant with you, and I washed you and made sure that you were clean. And if you read this whole chapter, the interesting thing that happens is this woman that God talks about doing this for actually goes out and gets dirty all over again. And she goes out, and she does a series of things, and through the chapter... God talks about how he made her beautiful and he gave her jewels and he did all of these things for her. But what I'd like to look at for a minute is verses 62 and 63. After she's gone out and she's done all kinds of things and it's changed her life and so forth and so on, God says, That's okay. You know what? I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to pull you back. Remember, you're mine. I chose you when you were a baby. I chose you again when you were a teenager, and I choose you again now. And he says in verse 62, I'll establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am a Lord. Then when I make atonement for you, for all you have done, you will remember. And never again will you open your mouth because of your shame. And initially I thought, you know what? It means she won't be able to say anything because she's ashamed. And then I thought, wait a minute, if indeed he's washed her and changed her and turned her back and so forth and so on, where is her shame? Remember the woman who was caught in adultery? Where was her shame? Because God said to her, of course, after he had spoken to her, you know what? You are so terrible. You have done all these terrible things, and you should be ashamed for the rest of your life. Yes? Is that how you remember the story? That's not how I remember the story. What does the Bible say? He said to her, Go. Sin no more. You're my daughter. You're my child. It's done. It's buried in the depths of the sea. It's washed whiter than snow. Go. Go sin no more. So for those of us who may find ourselves in this discussion having been involved in things that have compromised our purity, the nice thing about God washing us is that then we are clean. Then we are pure again. And then we move forward in the gift that he has given. I did not, um, and I'm looking at time and we won't have time, I did not spend time talking about masturbation, which is something that I had on the list of things to talk about. And I'm not going to spend the time now to develop that, other than to say, we're looking at the same issues, folk, fantasy. Imagination combined with then the physical added to it with the same issues about isolation, about substituting the fake for the real, with the same issues about not allowing God to supply what we need at that stage in our lives. And so we have to do for ourselves what God has not given to us. Does that make sense? That, God, you haven't given this to me, so I guess I have to solve my own problem and do this myself. We can talk more if you need to. We can get a group together and talk more if we need to. But again, of those things that women struggle with and need to hold on to, that becomes a major one. All right. We're about to close with prayer. Our next session will be a session in which we talk about leadership and submission and what it means when the Bible says, submit, and how we might submit. But now, and this is really important to me and to you, let's submit to God. Those lusts, those things that we crave and that we might at times choose to meet that craving in ways that are not gifts from God. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad that we're your little girls. We're so glad, Lord, that we can come to you not just as princesses and daughters of the king, but also, Lord, as your little child, as your child who sometimes has reached for things that are shiny and bright, but not real sometimes grabbed onto things that seem to solve the problems that we have or provide the, the solution to the needs that we have. But you didn't give them to us, and they're not from you. I ask, Lord, that you would build a hedge around us, protect us. Help us, Lord, to know you well enough, to know your word well enough, so we see impurity coming and we flee. But also, Lord, I ask that you would give us the compassion, the kindness to walk with those of us and others who may be trapped in what for them seems to be uncontrollable cravings. Help us, Lord, to see you and how you might meet not only our needs, but the needs of those around us. And Lord, we thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for lives that are washed in your blood. We thank you for the promise of purity, no matter who we are and where we are through your sacrifice on Calvary. Lord, you're so good. You're so gracious. You're so wonderful. And we love you so much. Thank you for being our God, for loving us and for saving us. Amen.
0: This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.